right, everyone. Welcome to the newest episode of The Jay Davis Show. I'm here with Adam Hill. Uh, he is a speaker, uh, an owner of a family business with some family members, uh, and someone that I'm super excited to talk to. Thanks for coming on the show, Adam. Yeah, absolutely. Nice to, nice to be here, Jay. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. Well, you can probably give a better background and bio of, you, of your life. Do you want to want to give people kind of like, and you have an awesome story about some amazing things that you've done to overcome challenges and trials. Uh, do you want to give people a little background on on more about you? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to give a little context about uh, about my life, I grew up in a family business. Uh, the uh, uh, We've... Uh, we're a fourth generation family business. So my great grandfather started it. He passed it on to his four kids, his four kids passed it on to their kids. So at this point in time, we're, a, a you know, basically a second cousins generation kind of business where, you know, you've got, you got like uh, dozens of owners around there. So I'm not the sole owner or anything like that uh, by any stretch, but it's a, it's um, uh, but, but yeah, so it's, so it's kind of a workhorse legacy company that, that, that's been in the, in the family for a long time. But uh, I grew up, in Southern California. Um, and, uh, you know, dad was working for the business. Um, and you know, a lot of my younger life was, uh, you know, it was, it was great. I had two, two parents who loved one another and, uh, um, you know, you know, middle-class kind of childhood. So not, nothing like nothing really traumatic or anything bad that really happened around that time. The only thing that really with me growing up was that I had this kind of budding anxiety disorder. I was always anxious, always worrying. And most of my life, I made a lot of decisions, um, made most of the decisions in my life around fear. Like this idea that like, you know, fear was, uh, uh, I, I wanted to avoid fear, feeling the feelings around that fear. And so I just tried to avoid it as much as possible. And, you know, that led me down uh, gradually some, you know, darker paths. I started getting panic attacks in college. That's when I discovered alcohol and started drinking heavily and, and, um, you know, gradually started becoming an alcoholic and, uh, and that, that nearly ruined my life. Um, and, um, and I'm giving you basic, the, basically the whole nutshell version of my life. I here, love but, it. I love it. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I ended up, um, you know, that, that ended up and alcohol ended up consuming my life for more than a decade. Uh, it, I, I, you know, was basically a vicious cycle of me trying to manage my anxiety on a daily basis, white knuckle it through the days, but then try and drink at night. But um, I ended up getting sober after I experienced something and and did something that I never thought that I would do, which was uh, I got into a DUI accident. And that was a rule that I told myself that I would never break. Uh, I hated people who got behind the wheel after drinking and 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 made that terrible choice. And put people's lives at risk. And, uh, and, and I, and I absolutely hated people that did that. Um, but then over time I became one of those people like this person that I didn't want to be. And, and so it was almost like I started, I, I just began to hate myself. And, uh, so I was sitting in, in the jail cell after, after that experience, uh, fortunately nobody was hurt, but, but it, it was a life changing experience and that I never, I, I, the very next day I walked into my first AA meeting uh, and I have never had, I haven't had a drink since, and it has changed the trajectory of my life in such a positive way. And I tell that story because there's, there was such, you know, even though that was the nutshell version, 
there was I, there was such an overwhelming hopelessness in my life during that period of time where I was drinking, where I didn't feel like I was being, you know, me, where I couldn't get over this fear, this anxiety, and and this alcoholism. And then I'm in 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 the jail cell, thinking that I've done something that that I never said that I would do. Now I'm a danger to others, and I felt absolutely hopeless. But the reason I tell that is because beyond that, after healing, I found that there was tremendous amount of hope beyond that hopelessness with the right amount of healing and, and growth and everything like that. So that was my kind of my personal experience. And I entered into the family business, um, you know, around uh, within that time where I was drinking and, and, and everything like that. But my career really started to develop after I got sober and, uh, and uh, ended up, you know, starting our customer service department, building on that from there. And uh, I became uh, CEO of the company in about 2017. So I've been been in that role for about this last six years. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of my story in a nutshell. Man, thanks for sharing that. It's such a, such a cool story. And I think it's uh, something that I think something that naturally happens in business is we, we all want to put our best for, foot forward. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it's, I think sometimes people kind of ascribe it to like, we're all being fake. And it's like, I've even had times where I've gone and spoken to students and they're like, yeah, I get to the end of my story and whatever. And they're like, man, you like, so you've like never failed. And I'm like, wait, what? No, like I've <laughs> failed so many times. Like, right. How did you get that from my story? But it's because we usually give kind of the highlights or we, or we just kind of, talk about like, Hey, these are things that I'm really excited. I got to be a part of. And sometimes we kind of want to forget the rough times. Um, but I think in doing so, we, we kind of give this perspective as if it's always been easy for us or we've never gone through challenges. And so I really love hearing that story. I think we all have those things and we all have those moments where we're like, man, this is insane. And I don't know if I'm going to make it and you feel hopeless and you don't know if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's always that, that, that feeling too. And I, and I really like to share that part because it is easy to look at, 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 at the highlights and just say how, how amazing those things are. And that's really the nature of why, you know, I like in, in my podcast, I like to highlight the people that the stories of like amazing people who've achieved amazing things, but I'd like to focus on the, the challenge part. Where did you, where did you face like a big challenge? And where did you overcome it? Cause that's the part that's like, that's the human side of it. I mean, the human side of how we achieve things is exactly what you said. The failures, the little micro failures or the failures that we experience and we grow from that's where the growth occurs. Uh, and, um, and yeah. And so those stories that we can share about ourselves, as long as we don't live into that victim mentality, as long as we can try and learn from them, that's when we can start to grow and live into our best lives. Yeah. I love it. That's so awesome. Um, well, I also would love to hear, and, and I'd love to kind of dive into what, uh, you now do as a speaker, um, just to go give a little context on your business though. So you have the speaker business and you have the family business, which is, uh, a chemical business, right? Yeah. Yes. So you, so you guys sell chemicals to what kind of companies only here in the Western United States or all around the country? What's kind of the first? Yeah. So we sell, we sell industrial environmental uh, chemicals for, uh, for uh, municipalities, water treatment plants, sewage treatment plants, uh, um, all sorts of different 
industries that that require uh, chemicals to treat their their products. And uh, so a lot of what we do, and we sell on the western in the western states. So a lot of what we do is we'll bring in the concentrated chemicals, we'll dilute them, bring water in them, then deliver them out to the uh, to the uh, customers and municipalities that are within our geographic footprint. And uh, and for the most part, what that means is that we're delivering products that really help to clean up our water, clean up our sewage, clean up uh, the things that are dirty, the unsexy things that people just don't want to <laughs> yeah. think about. Right? I mean, yeah. it's before yeah before you turn on uh, the tap and after you flush it. That's where our stuff goes in. And uh, and yeah, but w- w- we started that business uh, uh, back in 1923, so we just celebrated our hundredth anniversary. And I, know I look great for my age, I know, but, um, <laughs> but no, we've, we've, uh, yeah. So we started out really, uh, my great grandfather had a phone, a desk chair and, um, and a bicycle. And that's how he started this business. He, he started by selling laundry chemicals to local, uh, laundromats in, in, uh, in, uh, uh Los Angeles and survived, you know, through the great depression by, you know, by, uh, uh by serving, you know, effectively and, and pivoting in certain ways. You know, in, in, in World War II, we started selling Navy ships and things like that. And so all of these different, speaking of challenges, we survived through that legacy by adapting and, and you know, really pivoting our business to serve the greater good in times of challenge. And that's what we continue to try to strive for today so that we, our, our legacy, our, our goal, our, 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 our mission for the long term is really to be a sustainable business to create livelihoods for generations of people. So that that's really the nature of the the, the business that that we have. That's amazing. Um, what you know, this is something that I talk to a lot of people about as an advisor, investor, and in startups. Um, I think one of the things that is always surprising to me and a good lesson to me is how usually, especially new entrepreneurs, focus so much on the idea. And so they're mm-hmm. like, you know, this is a good idea. And then my initial questions are always like, what's your cap table look like? Who are you starting this with? Who are yeah. you running <laughs> this? You know, like, have you guys talked about some of the hard conversations? Like what happens if one of you dies? What happens if one of you gets divorced? What happens if one of you decides to leave? When do you join the business? It's all those questions. So one of the things I love asking people who are in family businesses, because I think it's a great example. And it's kind of like maybe the hardest uh, version to go through. And so what advice do you give people or would you give people? Because so many people are starting businesses, usually with people either they are friends with or family with. I think that's the most common thing you see. So what advice now having worked with all these family members, some it sounds like maybe kind of distant family members, what have you yeah. learned and what would you tell other people about starting a company and running a company with people you know? Yeah, so uh, I, I love that question. And and my answer may surprise people from, you know, coming from a CEO of a family business. But I, I would tell people to uh, to begin that business. And instead of thinking it as a visit of family, I think you, you're doing yourself a disservice by thinking of that business as a family. I think you should think of it more like a team or a tribe. And, uh, you know, whichever one of those connects with you better, but because in those teams, in a, in a baseball team or whatever kind of team, the winning teams are the teams that organize around the greater good and the goals that you're setting. And if you're not going to serve the greater good, 
um, you can't do that. I mean, when you look at when you look at families in general, I mean, some families are great. My family's my family was great. My I, I love my family. I love my parents, and everything's great. But not every family is like that. Some families are terrible. Some families aren't great. And so, so bringing somebody in and saying this is a family, that might like not be great for them. Um, and and I think that also when we think of it as a family, we get kind of we get we tend to get attached to the sacred cows of not being able to have the difficult conversations that we might need to have with those people that we think may be untouchable because they're quote unquote family. And if, again, so if we're focused more on the greater good, we have to think of the team rather than the family. And so that's what, that's the first piece of advice I would have for anybody that's maybe thinking of getting in with with family or anything like that. Yeah. Yeah, no, I uh, I love that. I think that's such a great point, and uh, it's a great reminder. And, and I think it's um, you know one of the things I always say is never hire anyone you're unwilling to fire. Uh, <laughs> and that's just a hard reality of running a business is sometimes it's not a good fit, and it can be great people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think we have a stigma all around the world. I would assume. Uh, but definitely here in the U.S. that you get fired because you suck and you're a horrible employee. It's like sometimes you get low because it's like, hey, it's not a great fit or, you know, you're going to be happier in a role that's a better, fit, uh, you know, better fit for your skills. You know, there's so many reasons. And so I think that's what's hard is when, like you said, when you go into this, if we think of it as a team and you think you kind of compare the business more to like an NBA team. Um, then you start thinking of it in a different way. You're like, oh yeah, people transfer between teams all the time. And you'll often have a player who goes from one team to another and all of a sudden just things click and they become this amazing player. And it's like, they're the same person they were on the other team. Um, just to make the analogy here in Utah, we have a guy named Jordan Clarkson, who if you're a basketball fan, has really kind of hit his stride with the jazz. Like he was always a great player uh, he's an awesome person. He's an amazing part of our community here. But Utah has just kind of embraced him. And he's embraced Utah, and and all of a sudden you see someone like him who's like, man, I freaking love that guy. He's so he's so talented. He's also does a lot for our community. Um, and something hit something, and so I think that's what's difficult. Like you said, is if you think of yourself as that team, then you are also going to be thinking about, Hey, we might at some point have to have really hard conversations. We might have to, you know, go down some roads that are difficult. So yeah, it can be yeah. tough. And, and once you kind of go down that path of, of creating a family atmosphere, it's really hard to break that. I mean, the yeah, culture yeah. of, of sacred cows are, are, it's hard to break. And, um, and, and I think that there's, there's a lot of talk about core values. You know, everybody talks about what are, you know, having core values. And I think that's really important to have core values within a company, regardless of if it's, if it's a family business or, or not a family business or just partnership or whatever, having those core values is the beacon, but the opposite side of that, that kind of gets created for you in the void of those, of, of living those values is the, uh, is the idea of sacred cows and sacred cows can just kind of destroy that company. And those sacred cows come into play when you just create these non-negotiables like, yeah, that, that's an untouchable. You can't, you can't touch that piece. You can't touch that or you can't touch that. Then all of a sudden that starts to, that starts to bring you to that place of complacency. You can't grow from that. And, and yeah. you, so breaking those sacred, it, so breaking that culture of family is really difficult a lot of times. Yeah. I think that's really great. 
Well, I think that leads really well into uh, the next thing I really want to talk to you about is uh, you have have transitioned, I guess you could say. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you have this other awesome career of uh, being a speaker and, and someone who motivates and uses your story and experiences to help other people to improve and grow. How did you get into that and what kind of attracted you to that space? Yeah. So I've, I've always loved performing. I've, I've been, you know, a musician all my life and everything like that. And before I got into drinking, um, I was, you know, I, I was a, a cellist. I played cello and that was one of my first experience being a disciplined person. And it, I didn't know it at the time, but it was, it kind of became a trait that I, I started to learn how to be really disciplined and, and, and everything. But I quit that when I got into college and I was drinking and all that kind of stuff. But once I got sober, um, I, and, and that hope began to enter into my, my life again. Uh, and this was about 12 years ago. So 20, 2012, um, I started to think again about things that I could do that I would, that I never thought were possible for me. I spent the last decade thinking like I can't, or, or my entire life thinking I can't do things because I feel afraid or I just can't, you know, I, I just don't have the capabilities, but now I, I had a point of reference for myself that I could do something that I once thought was impossible, which was get sober. And that lit kind of a spark so that, um, so that it, it made me start to look outward into other things that I might want to do. Uh, so in my first year of sobriety, I was constantly told by people in recovery, and I listened to this, that you should not make any major life changes your first year in recovery. Don't make any major life changes. Focus solely on recovery. And I did that. I practiced it with discipline. But as a a, a type high achiever, right? I mean, my thought was like, okay, at a year of sobriety, then I got to make a major life change. Like it's something big. I got to do something. Yeah. Yeah. So early on, like, like many years earlier, I, I, I had, I saw the Ironman world championship on television for the first time. So the Ironman world championship, if you've ever heard of it, you've ever heard of it, it's a, uh, uh, triathlon that has a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike, 26.2 mile run all in one day on the big Island of Hawaii. People are suffering, but they finish the race. And, and the amazing thing about that is every single one of them from the first place finisher to the last place finisher is smiling if they can manage the smile at the finish line. And I mean, everybody's totally (laughs) happy. And, and it inspired me when I saw it, but I remember the first time that I saw it, I was in the midst of like, I, I, I wasn't healed. I, I was still in the midst of my, my anxiety and alcoholism. And I remember seeing that and thinking to myself, that would be so cool if I could do something like that, but that's not me. I can't do that. I, 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 that's just not me. So I never thought about it again for the next decade. But then when I had a year of sobriety, that, that like those conditions just created this space for that idea to pop into my head again and think to myself, well, why can't I do something like that? And so at that point in time, I, I began to pursue the Ironman with the goal of qualifying for the Ironman world championship. I'd never done a triathlon in my life. I'd, I'd run maybe a couple of like 10 K's and a half marathon before that, but, uh, never did anything like, um, with any endurance except drinking and smoking. But, um, I started just practicing that with discipline. And four years later, I crossed the finish line of the Ironman world championship and I did it on national television. And it was one of the pivotal moments of my life. And, and that whole experience just led me to build this framework around how we can reframe our relationship around fear. So this is a long way of kind of getting around to why I wanted to be a speaker is because I want to share this. Yeah. (laughs) I wanted to share this message 
for uh, for people to know that we don't have to experience fear and just run from it. We can experience fear in a new and positive way that it's a signal where we have an opportunity to grow, to expand past our comfort zones and to lean into the things that maybe scare us a little bit, but, but can also push us to greater heights. And there's a way in which we can do that. So, um, so that's what I speak on. That's what prompted me to want to do that. And, um, and yeah, I've been trying to share that message with, uh, different groups of leaders, aspiring leaders, colleges, and, and, and things like that, uh, for the last uh, year or so. That's so cool. Uh, I think it's so great. I think it's such a, it's such a common piece of just being human and, and going through. I think that's something that the last couple of years has really struck me in business as you talk to people and everyone's this, I had a, interview today with a potential uh, hire and, and we were just kind of talking about that how he used to work in music and so he's met tons of celebrities and uh yeah. you know famous people and musicians and he's like you know they're all human they all have fears they all have things they worry about and stress about we all look at them as like oh they've got it all perfect and figured out and their life has nothing wrong with it and it's like couldn't be farther from the truth uh, and, and not to say they're not great people, they're great people. It's just, they're human, uh, just like all of us. And they have things that they worry about and are afraid will happen. And, um, and I think it's a reassuring thing to know that, that, uh, Hey, this is, this is just a part of the process that we're all going through. And so, um, mm-hmm. I think that's so great to hear. And it's a, really awesome. I think it's really exciting to, um, be able to talk to someone like you and, and for people out there who are maybe going through that challenge, uh, uh, or, or challenges in business. I think that's another thing that just, I keep going back to is you get to the root of it. And we always joke at Hill cube, like we probably just need a therapist. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we say we're hiring a business coach. They're yeah. really just, and, and they are a business coach. They're not really a therapist, but uh, but there is some therapy we need as a team. Like we need some, some team, uh, you know, help, uh, just to improve and change it. So it's, it's awesome yeah. to see. Is there, is there anything as you, as you've been a coach and you're learning these things, uh, what are some things that you would say most teams should think about? Uh, I think your advice on try to avoid the family culture. I think that is man, it's so spot on. It's so mm-hmm. hard to get out of that, but, uh, and it's so damaging. What are some other things that you would tell people to think about? Yeah, I think that, that the, I, I think it's important that, I, I think there's so many different kinds of business systems out there, like, you know, EOS, we run on EOS, like, like, you know, Gina Wickman, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but there's other syst- business systems out there. And I think that it's important that a business run on a system. So systematizing your business in some way so that you can just take the weight of decision-making off of a single person or a group shoulders and put it on the system so that you can more effectively make those decisions without, you know, without, without injecting too much emotion into it as much as possible. And that sounds cold and calculated, but, but it's also very important because the pace at which we're making decisions that are going to change the nature of our business is growing, I believe. And it's, it's more rapid. And it's more important that we make those decisions in the right way, coordinated way. Systematizing the business is an important way of doing that. And so we implemented EOS uh, about two or three years ago. 
And I mean, it had dramatic and dramatic results for us because, um, previous to that, we hadn't done anything like that. You know, we, we'd always just, we had operated on that kind of like that family culture kind of thing. So in the process of, of systematizing it, we broke kind of what wasn't working and we did so without having to necessarily keep the weight on one person where it was just like a, a, uh, 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 you know, a heavily weighted decision and it, it moved us in the right direction. So I, and to your point, because you mentioned about the have, having uh, hiring a therapist for the company, I mean, I think that's a big deal because it's hard not to keep that emotional aspect of the of that tied into the company. All business is personal, and so being able to kind of work through a lot of that is uh, is is important. So systematizing, yes, is is an important one. Uh, right people, right seats. I mean, the Jim Collins, uh, you know, totally yeah. part of that that so important. Um, and uh, um, and it, it, the wrong kind of hires, the wrong people in the, in the, in the right seats is just so damaging, so hard to get out of. Um, and so making sure that those kind of hires go smoothly is, is vitally important. And I think those two complement each other because having the right system means you can put in place the right kind of values and the right kind of, uh, expectations and accountability to hire the right people and put the right people in the right seats. Yeah. I love that. We've actually uh, been been jumping in more and more. Rocket fuel is like one of my like every every time I talk to entrepreneurs, I'm like, if you haven't read this, like you're like not understanding who you are as a <laughs> as like <in> your core. <laughs> so true. Uh, yeah. Then you read it and you're like, does this guy know me personally? Did he write this about me? Uh, yeah. So it's like so helpful. Uh, but yeah, we've been actually in implementing more and more of the the us system because i think we started to feel that like hey we we have all these systems for everything and then we don't really have a system to run the companies uh and, and that's really important and so uh, i think that's so great and it's it's i think almost every entrepreneur i talk with leader i talk with always goes to like it's all the cliche stuff but it's cliche because it's so true i mean it's just mm -hmm. like um, and not to say that those are cliche answers it's just I go back to like, man, it's the fundamental basic stuff that you hear people say, um, but obviously we need to keep talking about it because people miss it. Uh, you know, you get mm -hmm. distracted. I think especially in our world of kind of e-com and D2C, we've gotten so distracted with all these tactics and, you know, what what's your tech stack and blah. And I'm like, dude, have you thought about supply and demand? Have you thought about price? Like, that's why you're struggling to sell. You're not appealing to your audience. You're not telling yeah. about your product in a way that people even care. You're just ignoring a lot of that stuff. And so I think it's the same stuff there. Like you go to the the things of running a business and it's exactly what you said. It's hiring great people, building a system that they can understand what their role is, what's expected of them, all those things. Um, and so but it's, it's the process that's fun. You have to love implementing those things and doing those things on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. Yeah. And I like, I love what you said there too, about, about the idea of, uh, you know, y y appealing to your customers and more and more now in, in today's world, the idea of that, that brand identity, um, and, th and this goes for individuals as well as, you know, companies is so much more important because if you're not developing your own brand, if you're not owning the message of your own brand that is going to be created for you. 
Um, and so that void is going to be filled, whether you control it or not. So you might as well take it by control and, and, and own that and own the message. So, uh, uh, so that's, that's such a critical, critical element too. I love it. Well, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I always, I always tell people, you know, we try and shoot for like a 20 minute mark and, uh, <laughs> it's always way over and, um, it's just so fun with people who are willing to share their experiences and thanks for sharing your life story. Um, anything you'd love the audience to go do, uh, any call outs, visit your website or anything like that. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to uh, connect with me or, or find out more about me, you can, you can go to my website, which is adamhillspeaker.com. It has all my information. You can also find my uh, find my podcast, Flow Over Fear, which uh, uh, where I talk about uh, how we can rise above fear, and I talk to other leaders as well. So, um, yeah, you find me there. Love it. And you wrote a book? I did, well. yeah. So I have, a, I have a book that it is my story. It's not in a condensed version, Shifting Gears from Anxiety and Addiction to a Triathlon World Championship. Um, and it's available on Amazon, um, check it out. And, uh, yeah, so it's my life story, how I overcame alcoholism, uh, to get to a triathlon world championship. And, uh, and yeah, so that's, uh, it's, it, it was a fun process to write that book too, by the way. So yeah. that's amazing. That's, uh, one of my goals in life that I keep being like, I should do, I, I need to write a book, but yeah, it's, it's really inspiring when you meet people who have done it. I think we all, we all think that. Uh, but it's amazing to see when people like, oh, I went and did it and made it happen. So congrats yeah, so, to you. <laughs> thank you. That's thank amazing. You. <laughs> yeah. And I, I would suggest anybody, right. Everybody's got a, everybody's got a story in them and you just yeah. you know, do the daily practice and eventually you've got it done. So yeah, it, it, uh, it was one of the proudest things I've done. So yeah. That's awesome. Do you still write every day? Is that something I do. that's kind I, of stuck I, through that process? Yeah, I try to, I try to, I try to, you know, journal or write music or write some kind of, uh, do some kind of creative process every day. Cause I, as of talking about rocket fuel, I'm, I'm a visionary. I'm on the visionary side of that. Yeah. So I always have to be creating. And, uh, yep. and so that's a really important part for me. And, uh, so yeah, second book may be on the way, uh, within the next uh, couple of years or so. So yeah, yeah look out for that. <laughs> I love it. So amazing. Yep. Well, Adam, thank you again for coming and inspiring uh, our audience and listeners and uh, for being the person that you are. We really appreciate it. Thanks, Jay. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks. 